episode is an interview podcast with a musician, something I hope to do two, three, four times per season with the Records and Riffs podcast. If you are not subscribed, please do so in the iTunes store. Just search for Records and Riffs. Go ahead and give it a rating and a comment if you like to. Anything good or bad, just uh, let me know what you think. would love to hear your feedback, particularly in this first season. Ryan Stasek is my interview today. He is the bass player for a terrific band, Umphreys McGee. Probably the most nimble and talented live act out there today. In terms of the six-piece outfit, the guys they have in this band, it's pretty insane how good they are. And the fact that so much of their show is improvised, but has so much organization to it. Just an incredibly diverse lineup. The, the kind of stuff that they can play varies all over the map. And their shows frequently feature cover songs and sometimes those cover songs will be blended into cover other covers and you get some cool mashups so there's a lot of cool stuff i really highly recommend it as for stasic he's a he's a really solid bass player in that he kind of is just well suited to keeping the band level while a lot of other guys will kind of fly around the stage so to speak some songs i'd recommend from him uh, a song called Prowler off the record Local Band Does Okay. In the Kitchen is a song he mentions on the podcast. That's off my favorite Umphreys record, Anchor Drops. Puppet String, which you can hear playing right now. That's off a record that they made recently called Similar Skin. Really cool bass line there from Stasic. And that's a, a, a solid record, Similar Skin. It's a little harder, but it, it brings the rock for sure. Another song that Stasic's Billies are featured pretty prominently on is 1348. 1348, it's off a record called Mantis. That's my second favorite Umphreys record. And then a couple more. If you're looking for live stuff, Dump City, Hurt Bird Bath, and then a song Stasic mentions as one of the most challenging to play, Wizard Burial Ground. Yes, this is a band that has songs like Wizard Burial Ground. Um, but it's fantastic. Enjoy the conversation. Uh, Stasic was so cool, and it was it was so much fun to have this conversation. And uh, he's also into some sports as well, so that's pretty cool, being that, you know, I write sports full-time, and, and that was kind of how we ended up uh, connecting and hooking up. So here he is, Ryan Stasek of Umphreys McGee. All right, the goal of this podcast is to get on writers that know their stuff, big-time fans of bands, and you know deep dives on bands, but also to get musicians and members of bands on the podcast as well. And certainly, I'm a huge Umphreys McGee fan, and here in this first season of the podcast, I reached out to a few different artists and musicians, and fortunately, I'm, I'm Facebook friends with a couple, and so I had reached out to the bass player of Umphreys McGee, Ryan Stasek, and I said, listen, man, I'm doing this thing, here's who I am, you've never heard of me, you want to give it a shot, and he said, hell yeah, dude, why not? So, Ryan's joining me now, and we're going to talk a bunch about Umphreys McGee, if you are familiar with the band, this will certainly be a conversation that will uh, will entertain you, I think. And if you are not quite certain about Humphreys McGee and you're like, "What the hell is that name? Who is this band?" Which is a lot of, which is the case sometimes with people before they become fans of the band. Hopefully, we can give you a little more insight into who they are and why their deep catalog is so worth exploring. So, Ryan, thank you for joining me, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. I'm I'm glad you uh, asked me to join. I think this is my first official podcast that I'm aware of. So I'm is it really? Team. Okay. I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe I was part of one that didn't know it. Okay. Well, in terms of what's interesting for me in doing this endeavor, so you know, I cover I cover sports primarily for a living. The music thing is just a, a huge passion project that I've wanted to do forever, and I do a little bit of music writing on the side. But I'm starting to discover just, you know, differences between interviewing 
coaches and athletes and in that whole process and interviewing musicians it's I, I think there are there are distinct differences but in terms of like dealing with the media and and doing press kits or junkets or whatever is it is it something that umphreys has kind of uh have you guys hit into sort of a a routine when it comes to album releases or do you kind of just do stuff randomly depending on if you're hitting into you know another city for the fifth time and you know the local paper or whatever wants to talk to you how often do you actually deal with the media um, you know, we're, I'd say a lot, the answer is a lot. I don't think we're at a stage or even close to a stage where we can decline things. I think it always helps. And, and we're always, we always have something brewing or going on that we want to talk about anyway. I mean, there's, there's definitely six of us in the band. So there's definitely some of the guys that, that like to talk a little bit more than the others. So when we get into situations at festivals or whatnot, sometimes, uh, Joel and I like to take the lead and, and, um, He's a pretty good wingman. Um, different different types of humor there, so we try to balance each other off. But we're always getting involved um, as much as possible to talk about anything that's going on with us. All right, so Humphreys McGee, for those who are not initiated, it's uh, in reality, the, the band covers more sounds live than really any band I can think of. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's from everything from hard rock to metal to blues electronica you've got even some folk sensibilities just general straight rock you can cover a lot you cover so many different artists so many different songs you know there's some zappa influence without a doubt uh some king crimson some zeppelin in there i'm kind of hitting on a bunch of different genres and i'm sure you've you know heard so many over the years but the question that's an obvious one but for people that might not know the band categorize your guys sound ryan as as effectively i guess as you could because it is so wide-ranging right i'm gonna have to say um it is self-indulgent um improvisational pretending to be progressive rock okay is what is what i would if i had to categorize it i think the main thing um it's that, that has turn our band to what it is that, that we love to make stuff up and improvise every night and the six of us come from such different backgrounds um from what we grew up in and what we were influenced by or what we studied um our drummer came from a jazz background his master's in jazz our percussionist andy totally into hip-hop his brother produces a hip-hop beat he makes beats on the side jake came from well, Jake does pretty much everything, but he came from the, the really heavy metal and the and the rock and roll, even the country. He did a time with country. Brendan has the singer-songwriter and loves the Beatles. And um, I grew up kind of more in the hard rock. Then kind of dove into the, the psychedelic stuff as well for a while there. And then Joel is classically trained. So all six of us come from way different backgrounds, and we're always trying to bring new stuff to table and i think what's most important is we're always open to listen and learn and uh you know be open-minded and appreciate what other people are into and i think that really shows in the live show especially when who's going to start an improvisation who's going to start um an open jam section and where's it going to go you know that changes nightly on who wants to take the reins and i think everybody's super cool about listening because listening is is the main you know that's the most important thing and see where we're going to go with it every night to make a difference. So the music's really hard to define for me because every night it could be soft, it could be heavy. Um, it, it just have, that's why I think they're fancy so many, so many shows or catch so many runs or sure. multiple shows in a weekend because they know it's going to be so different each night. 
with the improv specifically, uh, you know, I've got a few friends who actually do Second City stuff in Chicago, and the first, one, the first one and only rule of improv is you can't say no. Like you have to go in terms of Absolutely. acting, you cannot say no. Every whatever is presented to you on the stage, you have to agree to go with it. And to a certain degree, right? Yep. Is it would it would it correlate to what you guys do on stage? Because for those who aren't totally familiar with what Umphreys does. A lot of your shows feature a, a heavy portion of improv that if you're sitting, if you're just going for a first time, you might not even realize it. What, how much is really being done on the fly? Can you depict how that's even, how you even execute that beyond the obvious? Hey, we've been together so long. There's a certain chemistry there. There's there are certain mechanisms that certainly must be in place, Ryan. So how do you guys pull that off? Yes, um, absolutely. I think it's great that you brought up that quote from Second City because. Uh, I am a wannabe stand-up comic, and my mom is actually does some stand-up. And I've been to Second City, and I've been to Zanies, and, and all the places in Chicago. And uh, I we had a little meeting, a group meeting, after um, some certain situations that happened early in our career. And I used that direct quote from Second City and said, "Listen, we're improving. No matter whose idea it is, whether you hate it or you despise it, or if it makes you cringe, you give your best best performance to make it better." or as good as possible, no matter what. And then you leave, you know, you, you're always pro on stage and then you can talk about it afterwards and you're like, man, I really didn't like the direction you were going in here. And, and, and we've kind of set that in stone as, as a, as a serious rule. So when we're up there. Everybody's open-minded to take a chance and say, Hey, go with it, make this good. But the beauty of that too, is if no one has an ego to where if something does suck or if something's doing something and it's not gelling, we easily throw in the towel and, change directions and having six people in the band we have a talk back mic set up that you can only talk to each other on stage sure so if the drummer for for instance if the drummer's not digging what's happening and say we're getting pretty heavy and he's not vibing that at all he'll just say okay just just roads just joel on roads and just bass three four and then boom we'll we'll immediately follow those orders Man. and then on the spot all of a sudden we're going to be starting something in in hip-hop or who knows where it's going to go from there? So we have cues, we have visual cues that the guitar players and keyboard player and myself use up uh, in the front of the stage. And then we have popback mics to use too to make sure not only to, to change it up and, and, and keep it interesting, but, but to uh, make sure everybody's on the same page. When you have uh, as many songs as we do going into other songs, it's very easy to get caught in the moment and forget what's next. So we have cues to tell each other even to look at the set list or if it's something we rehearse backstage where it's going to be um, a different change. We, we'll go into the talkback mind and be like, okay, guys, this is what's happening next. And then so everybody's like, ah, oh. sometimes you skip ahead and you think it, yeah. that song is the next song. And uh, we've gotten pretty good at a high percentage of, of making sure that we don't start, you know, or start wrong songs or, 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 don't, or stay out of communication. So communication is key. And it's also key is the listening and is the eye contact is just as important for us because we're not, the, we're not the band and there's nothing wrong with this, but we're not the type of band that closes their eyes and just gazes at their shoes and jams an E minor and hopes that six people are going to be on mm. the same, same page and right. magic's going to happen. You know, we're more into trying to structure a song structure or a section or a Lego and see, Oh, we've got this. Let's, let's, let's make up another part. And then let's use signals to go back and forth and kind of write a song. So, and some of my favorite moments are is when Brennan um, will freestyle lyrics, and then that that really makes solidifies it as being like a proper song. 
instrumental you can do all day and all the time, but when you put a, a vocal melody over something, I think you've really created something that's withstanding. Ryan, has, can you give a few examples, if there are any, of songs that were created on stage at a show, played for the first time in that Lego style you mentioned, you know, kind of building one piece on another, where Brendan might have introduced some lyrics and they became full-fledged sure. songs? What are what are a few examples if people want to seek those out now that they're, you know, more firmly established? I'm pretty sure that In the Kitchen started that way. I think it was in Fort Collins at the Aggie. I can't believe I remember that. <laughs> I think that's when it was uh, years and years ago. Um, now, now this day and age, because we record every show and we're able to go back and listen, um, a lot of the newer songs definitely come from just back catalog. We have a guy who keeps uh, every one of our improvs um, organized and put onto a CD or put onto a, a CD, put into files and sent to us. And then we go through and we go, oh, that works. Um, besides, I know Kitchen started that way. There's, there's a bunch. It'd be hard for me to just okay. pop off. Pop up a few right now, but it definitely uh, happened. That's the beauty of improv. Yeah, and you know, I've seen plenty of your shows, and that to me is, to me, it's a really engaging part of the show because an audience basically, there's a certain element from my perspective that yes, you're clearly putting on a live show in a room with thousands of people in it, but when you watch, when watching you guys play out those sections, and you see, you know, Jake will make a a C shape with his hand or whatever, or Joel will direct something and you've kind of got your head on a swivel. It's almost as if we're sitting in on a really public band practice. There's, there's a certain element that you're you're letting us into a a room there that you don't get from a lot of bands. Yes. When you see bands live, there are plenty that have really good chemistry and interaction on stage, but there's, there's certainly a second level of dialogue that's happening with your band. And I think that's why a lot of fans even more so become addicted to the experience because they know that there's something being created there, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not stage. It's a, it's a genuine conversation happening right there with all six of you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's game time. It's just like in sports and you're running plays, you know, we, we, we have uh, or we used to at least spend a lot of time rehearsing cues and rehearsing ideas of, okay, this jam starts in a here. How are we going to get out? How are we going to get out of this? What are the, what are the multiple ways we can get out of this with, with tempo change, with key change, with um, any type of direction? And, and what type of cues can we use to facilitate this change? And we would practice that. Um, and that was, that was the behind-the-scenes practice. But um, you were seeing us as it was game time when, when we do it live. And, and just like in sports, you know, sometimes you don't get the first down. Sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you pull out a trick play and it goes for 90, you know. Sure. And then you never realize, like, wow, that's one for the books. So I think that's, like, that's the fun part of um, – of having these playbooks. And, uh, you know, back in the day, we, we even used to, I think some fans really dug this, but we used to not do a set list at all. We just go up there and be like, I mean, we didn't have as many songs back then too. We'd like, whatever happens happens. So it'd be very loose. There was, you know, 2001 to 2003. Uh, I think when Chris joined the band, we had to have set lists because he was learning such a large catalog of music in such a short period of time, which I still think is unbelievable. He learned like 186 tunes on drums, and what? it's not like three chords in the truth. I mean, he was like learning all these sections, and and uh, and his brain. I mean, his brain capacity for him to pull all of that in. You know, we kind of got stuck with uh, I shouldn't say stuck. We kind of stayed with set lists just so we could understand where we were going on. I mean, at that point, we didn't. Even, he didn't even know the names of all the songs. They were just like, what's the one that's in nine? Yeah, for sure. Before I'm going to cycle back to kind of the early band days, but to kind of recap this kind of primer on your guys' sound in general, if 
people are listening, they might be vaguely familiar with your stuff. If you know, name off five or six bands with relative popular mainstream accessibility. That if they like those bands, you guys kind of touch into those areas. Who are some some artists that you would compare your sound to? To compare our sound to? Yeah. Um. Well. That's that's a, that's a good. I know question. it's I know that's it's kind of a toughie because you guys you you dance in so many genres, but I'm just trying to give listeners an idea. Yeah, but, I'm into this band. I might I might find some some identification with Umphreys. So, some of them I'm going to have to identify more instrumental than I would vocally because I don't think we sound like uh, when we get heavier and we try to do odd meter and some progressive stuff. Um, we definitely are influenced by Tool. Tool might be my favorite band ever. But we don't have anything that's very vocally like what Maynard's doing. But we definitely touch on like the King Crimson and um, and even Yes when it comes in the prog world of the, the type of uh, progressive style that we're trying to go with. But it'd be hard not to say that, that uh, Frank Zappa or even bands like Pearl Jam and Guns N' Roses or the Beatles and Zeppelin or Floyd not having a big influence right. on all of us. We all we all knew them. Um, that, that's, that's always continuously happening, too. But I think it's always it's always interesting, too, because everybody in the band, being a professional musician and being, most of us being fathers and family stuff, like music is still, that's our that's our gig. That's our jam. That's what makes us happy. So we're always listening to new music. And everybody's got Spotify, and they're like, hey, have you checked this out? Hey, have you dug, you know, Jake's a big vinyl collector, uh, myself as well. And like, we'll, when we're in different towns, we'll dig up some old vinyl and listen, like, oh, have you listened to this? And then, you know, listening, my, my favorite thing is listening to music as a band together. And then when you go up on stage, like, you're all on that same page of being influenced of, of what you just heard, you know? Very we cool. pulled a, we found an old ACDC record out and uh, listening to it, listening to recordings. And, you know, people are ready to come out and rock. And we're going to have a rock and roll show. Very so cool. I think that happens. I, I'm not sure, like, exactly what bands people say i mean has anybody told you i mean there's it there's a lot of what you mentioned uh would certainly qualify there there ryan it's i could literally list off 50 bands where if you're into this band (laughs) you would find something with Humphreys. it's funny you mentioned vinyl i'll do quick cross promotion of the podcast if you've discovered this episode you can check out the subscription we have an episode dedicated to the vinyl movement uh, with the guy who created a site called Modern Vinyl. Definitely check that out. And there's also a podcast tied into fish. And I wanted to ask you a real quick thing on fish, because I'm sure you've been talk- asked about this plenty over the years. But uh, to me, you guys are the next... You are, you. I wouldn't say you've taken the torch or are taking the torch from fish. I would not say that's the correlation. But the, the fact of the matter is, Ryan, is that fish was a band that played t- that does and did plays two sets a night has a huge cult following huge tape trading scene doesn't doesn't play the same set has a lot of improvisation you guys have a lot of those same elements but now you have really truly in my opinion taken a fan interactive experience and we can get into umbol and all the stuff that you guys do with you know with downloading stuff with giving fans can literally go to your shows pay to have put on headphones and for the first time i saw this i was like what is going on there and now i know but fans can literally go to your shows pay a little bit more put on the headphones and get the direct mix that you guys are getting on stage and it kind of gives an even more intimate experience how do you feel about the fish comparison but also the notion that frankly i have that you guys have taken the element of a hard a hardcore fan base and a really um, dedicated touring outfit into a next step of evolution of what it can mean to be an improv band that continually pushes the limits between what you play, but also, you know, fan interaction and relation. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you've, you've touched on a few points that are um, that I considered some likeness in there. Like, w- w- but I would never say uh, anybody's taking the torch from fish. I mean, fish is the apex, and um, it's like apples and oranges. It's like comparing fish and the Grateful Dead. Even I mean, they, they sell out arenas. They do, you know, all over the world. That's just another level. And a huge fish fan here. Just took my two-year-old daughter to see uh, her first show in Atlanta um, nice. on August 1st and stuff too. But I, I don't think the other than that, I think it's it's very different. I think you know we play we play theaters and yeah we do improv and I think we're we're a much heavier heavier band. But it's different. They have four people. We have six. We got the dual guitar attack. Um, we got two drums and. Um, so it's different. I'm honored to be mentioned in that, but I think the the key thing that that makes us happy and what we're doing and, and what our fan base digs is is the um, the intimacy and the fan interaction that we have with our fan base. Are I think you, they totally dig that. And so, you guys have have had plenty of success. I mean, you're at a you're at a level where anyone that picks up an instrument and seeks to play in front of people, you're at you're at a level where you can live off of this. And, you know, and I would presume live yeah. fairly fairly comfortably. But having said that. You always want to progress and move forward, but do you, you know, if, if I said you can keep doing this for the next 5, 10, 15 years and, and playing 2,000 seat, you know, these gorgeous places, or if I told you, you know, in, in 2020, Humphreys McGee, you're only going to be able to play auditoriums because the fan demand is so high, but inherently you lose some of the intimacy of that. I mean, do you, ha- do you have a preference either or? Uh, no, um, you know, I'm all about living the now and, and seeing wherever, the, you know, this journey takes us. Uh, I think that it's still, there's still ways to put on your special shows and, and like our humble event that we do to, to keep it intimate. And I think, um, I don't think, it's, I, I just don't see it right now at any point where the, where the fandom the demand is that high that we're going to break into, you know, five to 10,000, like, like arenas or anything anytime soon. The music business is so different and it's, we're not mainstream. We're not, it's not pop radio and it's just a, it's a, it's a smaller demographic of fans and I love the fans. I'm one of the fans and I just don't see the jam band outside of fish really blossoming into that level. I could be wrong. I mean, why for panic crushes if they do well, Mo does well, there's, there's string cheese, there's huge bands out there, but there's just so much and there's so much access, so much music. I just don't know if, if um, concerts will ever become like they were when it was the 80s and everybody was doing arena rock tours. Uh, you know, it's so funny. I did a Nirvana. Like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. In these podcast episodes, I have a Nirvana episode with a good writer named Will Leach, and we get into a little bit of an argument over Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and all that. But but in that, I mentioned the fact that there really aren't, in my opinion, more than a handful of artists today that can sell out a baseball stadium, Taylor Swift being one of them, yeah. Beyonce being one of them. You too. You too. And, but go back, and it's so different, Ryan, than what it was two, especially three decades ago in 70s when the arena rock really became big. So you're hitting on something that I think has a lot of truth to it there. There's just – it's much more yeah. fragmented. It's more fragmented now than what it used to be, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been uh, watching the metal metal evolution or the VH1 Classics been playing the evolution of metal, and it goes through all of the bands and stuff. And, and it's right because, you know, I lived through a lot of that too, and – there was just so much more decadence and, and it was enormous and there weren't as many bands either. We didn't have the internet or YouTube or, or anything was going on like that. It's just a different playing field. Bob Lesfitz writes tons of great blogs and articles about the music industry and the changing. And, and uh, he, you know, he hits the nail on the head on, on a lot of them. Um, it's an interesting ride. It's an interesting change. And, and I think Humphreys has, has been what 17 years now. We've been a band way before, 
people had cell phones or an internet or anything. And like, it's, it's fun. I sound like an old man. Hmm. I'm like, Oh, back in my day, you get stuck in town. You didn't have anybody to call. You just left, you know, yeah, sure, <laughs> man. Your cell phone, you're like, Hey man, you guys left without me. It's yeah. Different times. It's great. And everything's been great. I've, been, I've loved every day of it. Wouldn't change a thing. No, absolutely. Um, um, it's just a different, different time for the record industry. And I think that's another reason why we do everything ourselves and kind of have been doing everything grassroots and ourselves. You know, we got our own record label. Now we do, we do everything internally. It takes a lot more work, but it's much more rewarding because we feel like we can do what, concentrate what we want to do and concentrate on what the fans want, which is the most important. Because without the fans, you know, we're not a band that's like, screw you, we, we don't care, we can do what we want. You know, we want to, we aim to please. We want to please ourselves first. So we want, we want to know what the fans want. We want to know what's going to bring them back. We want to know what they want us to experiment with, where they want us to go. We want to try new innovative ideas like the headphones and snow, snow cones and, and, um, Kind of like letting people fly first class if they want to for a show. Uh, if they're not into it, they can go back to coach. It's totally cool. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Let's circle back to the band's origins. So uh, the DNA strand really starts with you and Brendan Bayless, right, who was the lead singer because, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but did, did so you used to be a guitar player, and then you guys started to get together, and someone had to play bass, and so you said... Okay, I'll I'll play bass. Is that basically the very I mean, that, the, the infancy of Humphreys? <laughs> that that uh, that sums it up pretty quick. I was I was a piano player growing up, and uh, I noticed that a uh, a guitar was a lot more portable, and the girls seemed to dig the guitar more than uh, of course, of course, more than uh, an upright piano. So I picked up guitar, and when I got to college, I definitely wanted to make music with uh, with people. I want to make original music, and um, you know I searched the dorms and the and uh, the halls and, and, and I ran into Bayless. Bayless was playing a banjo. I think he's playing like the Rainbow Connection song at a at acoustic cafe at Notre Dame. And uh, I remember like I'm like, who is this guy? And uh, we had a pocket had a lot of interests. You know, we both saw fish. We both had other musical interest interests that we were into and I had a guitar at the time and I was like, you know, um, take it. I'll buy a bass, man. I'll play bass. Nobody else yeah. is playing bass. Nobody so you're eighteen years old you're eighteen or nineteen the first time you actually play bass? Yeah, about 18, 19, you know, I, and, and I switched over. I, I had a pick, and I bought a four-string Ibanez and, and um, immediately traded it in for a five-string and was so, was so like, such a rookie. I had no idea that a five-string was detuned to a low B. Hmm. So I tuned it E up to a high C, and, like, my neck warped and, uh, like, broke the bass. And I was like, oh, and I started, you know, started started to get my learn on a little bit because when we first started i still wanted to switch with brendan i still wanted to play guitar in some songs i wanted him to play bass and then like he but he was committed to being lead singer and being a being a lead guitarist too it's fine too because i was open to a lot of things i was like you sure we don't want to get like another singer in the band or do this thing? he's like dude i got this hmm. i was like all right and then we shook hands and we said you know what i promise i'm going to make music with you for the rest of my life he's like dude i'm into this and we started a band called tashi station um, from Star Wars, uh, with uh, yeah. I was in another band before, so we took the drummer and found a keyboard player, um, Steve and Greg, and then that's when we ran into Joel and Mike Muro, my former drummer, and they were selling out every bar, and all the kids with underage IDs were lining out the door, and like they were making money, and we were they were playing covers, and we weren't making money, but we were making enough money to charge a three dollar cover and get like free beer, so we didn't care. We were like, hey. We're drinking for free, but we played original music and we played, you know, we played a lot of covers too, but a lot of the covers were like Fish Run Like an Antelope or some Grateful Dead or, or Pink Floyd and stuff that we would stretch out because 
we were always trying to jam, basically. And then uh, when we met Mikey and Joel, it was like a bad breakup with your girlfriend. Like they quit their band and came over, and we're like, "Was it? Was it break up with our band?" Was that fairly? Yeah, was that fairly? But did you meet them and then that band dissolved? With are we talking within a matter of weeks here or or a couple of months? Because I've always wondered about that. Brennan and I were in a band from '95, the end of '95 through through for about a year in '96. At the end of '97, um, Joel and Miro, we had talked about it. We played an improvised piece of music at Joel's piano recital at Notre Dame, and that was like the first planting the bug in the air. Like, hey, that was pretty cool. These guys are vibing off each other. There's something. There's something here. Um, even my drummer and keyboard player at the time kind of had to look in the face and like, yep, we get it. And uh, it was probably weeks or a month. Um, it was pretty quick. It was pretty quick. Joel and Miro quit the band and came over and told me and Brennan at Brennan's house. And we're like, whoa, we weren't expecting this. So we had to, you know, man up and go tell our, tell our bandmates that we were, we were going to move forward with the, with the, with the, with the original foursome of uh, Umphreys McGee. Okay. And so the name real quick here, uh, which you've probably had to explain a hundred times over the years, but yeah. uh, People probably saw this podcast episode title and be like, what is Umphreys McGee? So, in my opinion, you've got the, when you see the name and then you hear the music, it's the most, they go in totally opposite directions of any other band I've heard in my entire life. You will not think you were hearing, whatever you think Umphreys McGee might sound like, it's not what the band sounds like. So, uh, (laughs) go ahead and explain the band name and if you, you, did you have any others before you settled on this? Yeah, are you allowed to swear? You are allowed to swear, so go, go, go hog wild. Umphreys McGee fucking horrible band name. Horrible <laughs> fucking band name. So when it started, we didn't. We had some ideas, but like again, and, and I'm not lying here, we did a lot of drinking and uh, a lot of after hours at bars. And uh, I think our first gig that we played, we were called Fat Tony, um, the mafia guy from the Simpsons, yes. the Simpsons fans back then. And we knew that that wasn't going to stick. It was temporary. So we had one week to decide what was going to be our band name. And um, Brennan was on a a family reunion and the second cousin from Mississippi was a lawyer and his name was Umphreys McGee spelled with an H and uh, he was telling stories about his reunion and I think we were drinking like Long Island iced teas and uh, for some reason that name was very unique and I don't know why it kept coming up in the conversation but we decided to change it around and keep it and um, we never really looked back after that maybe maybe we should have We, we, we have a few other ideas of what we wish we were called you know, like destroyer. Or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but but it was funny to go back because every time when we even when we were starting, we went to Notre Dame and and everybody thought we were a drunken Irish band. We were sure, like, that's what that's Irish that's the thing is the first and, time I ever discovered you, Brian. I'm like these guys are from Notre Dame. This is their name. I was like I don't know if I'm going to be into that stuff. That's the whole thing is that it's not just the name. It's the fact that you were you were went to Notre Dame. So there's this huge Irish connection there, and that yeah. just doesn't exist within the sound. Yeah. Everybody thought that we were like doing Heidi, 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 ho, and like getting in fights and, and uh, you know, crushing Guinness. And uh, some of that's true, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No, no. That's crazy. Okay, so bringing in Jake Sinninger, who is the who is the lead guitarist and now co-vocalist, he comes in in 2000. Where was the introduction there? And did you guys play random gigs with him and bring him on, or, or had one yeah. or two members? Okay, so explain how he, he was integrated yeah. into the band. Well, the thriving metropolis of South Bend does not have a giant uh, music scene, which I'm sure surprises a lot of people. <laughs> but um, Jake said Jake had just gotten back. Um, he had quit his country band 
he had been in a hard rock band and, and that had fallen through. I think he'd just gone through a breakup and he moved back to South Bend. And um, he was good friends with a couple of our friends and they started a power trio called Alibaba Tahiti. And there's a bunch of that music floating around on the internet. Some of the songs that Jake wrote, we still play in Humphreys, like nothing too fancy. And, and uh, so when I first saw Jake play, my jaw hit the floor. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, Eddie Van Halen and Stevie Ray Vaughan just like walked into the room and just crushed it. And he crushed it nightly. Right. And uh, I'd always joke. I was like, dude, it's the hick from the sticks with the dynamite licks. <laughs> and, and, and he, I mean, it was just every night, it was just, it just crushing, crushing. It was so fun. So we were like the only, from what I knew, like kind of improvisational original bands that were playing that, that type of music. And um, I told Brendan, I was like, listen, you need to call Jake right now. Cause I knew Brendan had taken a few lessons from, from Jake. And I was like, you need to get him in our band. Like, let's get him, let's have him move to Chicago. Let's do this. I know we can make it. He's our missing piece. We, we need, we need the guy. And, and Brendan called him and Jake was, you know, the timing was right. He was open to it and he wanted to give it a shot. So he, he moved to Chicago and, you know, we haven't, we haven't looked back. We've been, you know, he, he, he had, played a few gigs before because he was learning all the material. So he'd come and sit in for a little bit, play a few songs. But again, just like Chris, man, he, the kid's a, the kid's a genius. He, he learned them all. And, and it was full time by 2001. That's uh that's really impressive. And yeah. So Chris Myers joins in what? Oh, two, Oh three. Cause you had a former drummer, the late Mike Miro, who gave up the band because he, at the time you wanted to uh, pursue uh, an education in medicine. Okay, and so yeah, Mikey, uh, Mikey wanted to be a doctor, so he left, and Chris, uh, Chris was one of the first, first one of the first guys that we interviewed. So he came down. It was funny. He gave us this like eight by ten black and white picture of him in a tuxedo with the Chris with a K, and we we're like, who is this guy? Hmm. Uh, but it came with a CD, and the CD was like labeled like Jazz Fusion One, Metal Two, uh, you know, he, it just went yeah. down, and he was just cr- we're like, what? This guy's crushing, crushing. Wow. He was the first guy that that sent us a demo. We're like, yeah, let's have him come over. And, and just like Jake, and just like uh, with Andy and, and with Chris, you know, we're immediate, immediately great friends. You know, talking about music. You know, join, he was super stoked to to join a you know a touring band and and um, you know brothers, just like a bunch of brothers. And Mike was had a different sound and approach that still worked with with your sound. There's certainly, I think, an element of the fan base that that has a very soft spot for your for your sound with Mike. But when he and when he came to you guys and said that he was gonna have to leave you guys were really starting to hit another gear there so at that moment was you know did you guys basically have confidence that you could find a replacement drummer and, co- no. and continue to ascend or was it a, was it almost a come to jesus moment like this thing might be dying on us if we don't oh yeah okay yeah man we were in we were in shreveport louisiana um i remember the night because the steelers were kicking the colt's ass and it was on television while we were eating at a at a restaurant, I think Shoney's or something. I don't even know. <laughs> and uh, that's when he dropped it on us that, uh, you know, he's like, hey, guys, I've been thinking about some life decisions. And, and we were like, what? And, um, I mean, the whole band, I don't think the whole band was even there. He just dropped it on us. And uh, I remember going back to the hotel room that night. She had a video camera. We all had video cameras back then. It was like the moment I had that, that, that letting it set in moment when I was sitting in the bed being like, wow, I don't, what am I going to do? Like, what, what am I going to do now? I don't know what, what I'm going to do. Just that confusion. And I, you know, that's, it lasted for a short moment, you know, and, um, Mikey was one of my best friends, um, probably closest to me out of anybody in the band, you know, and, uh, 
I understood, you know, a lot of things that were going on with him, what he what he wanted to do, and I respected his decision. You know, from the from the get go, you know, he's a grown ass man. He can make his own decisions, and and I'm his friend, and real friends support each other, and uh, I supported that decision. And, and it was a scary process um, from when he left, but but once Chris got behind the kit, there was no there was no worries. It just felt right. And and Chris is such a monster, and he has such a um, fantastic musical background. I mean, he can play anything. He he has his masters in jazz, but he he can do it all. And uh, and he's still always learning, and, and he's he's a hell of a dude, uh, funny guy, and, and um, I think we're really blessed, you know, to to have the same six people since 2003. I mean, we've been the same band for 15 years, 15, 12 years, 15 years. So, <laughs> close um, enough. I mean, there's yeah. something to be said about that. Yeah, close enough, right? Uh, yeah. All right, let's go through some rapid fire stuff here, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, one for anyone that might be listening that m- might be sort of a gearhead you want to run down your bass rig and, and what you play with and if, if there are a few pedals that you've introduced over the past one or two years or anything that sure. you're even experimenting I know how bass players, guitarists, I'm, I'm one of them I, I can get gear acquisition syndrome and is there anything that you might be experimenting with at home that you haven't even introduced uh, on the tour or, or live yet um, got a bunch of stuff at home that I've, that I've dug out that I don't bring on the road anymore because it's, it's vintage and touchy and um i just doesn't doesn't make sense like i have my my original moke tours too i have a love tone meatball envelope filter i think mike gordon used one of those but uh in a micro uh, a micro bass synthesizer by electro harmonix i've been messing with those a bunch and the moger foger bass murph but it's just too much for me to bring on the road right now like i've really been experimenting with it at home in the studio but on the road um i I just recently changed my rig. I got uh, I used four tens by uh, Ampeg cabinet with a 2001 ZK head, and then I recently bought two 18s from our soundman, um, Chris Mitchell, bag ends. So I have an 18 on stage. I have another one, but we don't play a big enough room to Damn. be putting two 18-inch woofers yeah. up on stage. <laughs> yeah. um, and I run that through, I run that through a solid state. But what I've noticed the most, um, what it did is. Is I was using a 15 before, and I was kind of getting some grit and some distortion. I wasn't getting a lot of mid-range, and I thought the I didn't realize when I put the 18 into the mix that it would really open up my my mid-range. Um, so Chris Mitchell loves it. Super smart guy. Chris Mitchell does a sound. Um, he's an audio wizard, so I always go for him for advice for um, for sound and technical support. And uh, my main pedals on the on the road are you know distortions and, and obviously the the Brown Boss octave pedal. I have a friend named Spencer Dorn out in Seattle. Spencer Dorn, he's like at Funky Spence, I think it's his name, if people follow him on Instagram or, or whatnot. But he's a bass player, and he builds pedals. And uh, he built the Tim LaFave octave pedal, and I bought a few pedals from him, and they're, they're quality. Well, they're expensive, but they're quality, quality stuff. Right. So I've been messing around with those, and, I, and, I, and a newer pedal that I've been using is, is a ring modulator that I have, which is a, it's the frequency anal- analyzer by Electro Harmonix. And that's a super fun pedal. Um, technically, I'm not very good at describing what it does, but it's, 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 you know, when you set it to a pitch, whenever you play away from that pitch, it starts making tones further away from, from the main tone that you're playing. So you get those computer, those real yeah. weird sounds. Yeah, that very, re- very influenced by Tim Lefebvre. Are you familiar with Tim Lefebvre? Uh, vaguely, vaguely. If you want to... Yeah, I'm a big... Uh, he, Tim Tim plays uh he's playing in uh Derek and Susan uh Derek Chuck's band now. And he uh he's been a New York guy, I think he just moved to LA. But I've been following his stuff since he played with Keith Carlock and Wayne Prance 
back at the 55 in New York and, and um, he played with a band called Rudder, some really good stuff there. And, and his, uh, his tones, like I give him a call all the time. I'm like, all right, man, what's the new pedal? What are you digging? And, you know, we, uh, he texts me back and tell me what's, what's going on. So you know, he's kind of him and Dan Kurtz, the bass player from the new deal are always keeping me up to date because they're forever enhancing their tone and then the rig and, and really getting outside the box with, with effects. Very cool. Uh, strangest gig location, strangest place you guys ever played that would be outside of like, we played in dorm room when we were in Notre Dame. So post-college weirdest spot yeah. you can remember ever playing. Easy, easy. We played, I think it was called the glass house in, um, it's the border of Oregon and California. And it was basically a meth lab. At a hotel. <laughs> okay. It was, it was disturbing. It was crazy. We did it with Jacob Fred jazz odyssey. Reed Mathis, great bass player, back when he was in that band, and um, it was it was nuts. Like we we were like we need to get the hell out of here. Well like, well attended. A mess. Well attended, Ryan, or no. maybe only a few souls in the spot. Uh, in the business, what we call a super tanker. I think there were like seventeen people there, and it was one of our, our West Coast run. I think of two thousand one, and and maybe fourteen of those seventeen were doing the whole run, kind of like following us around from the Midwest. Man, wow. Okay, what about, let's go opposite yeah. side. So you, you've played Bonnaroo myriad times. You've been to Japan. You've done a lot of festival shows. But whether big or small, if I were to say favorite two or three shows, you know, over the past 16, 17 years, what would, what would stand out to you immediately? Uh, Red Rocks. It's just such a magical place. I yeah. mean, it's, it might be cliche to say, except for when you've been there, when you, whether you're in the crowd or whether you're at the top or whether you're on stage there's something very special about it and there's, there's great energy there and, and there's such a such a history so rich in history too so that that always stands out i always feel privileged brendan and i funny story when we were first starting the band we were like well, man if we ever play red rocks hmm. we've made it hang it up we're successful we're done and i remember the first time we did it, we're like dude this is really happening there is a live <laughs> at proud moment there is a live at Red Rocks Umphreys DVD, by the way. came out, I believe, in 2012, and you can give that a very good watch. You can give that a listen. Uh, here's a random one. So I know Tony Reale uh, somewhat well. Yeah, and Tony. You, yeah, and so I'm interested if you could go back. Where did that relationship start? Because for anyone that watches Around the Horn, Umphreys and McGee is, is, the, is, the, is the band for Around the Horn now. They, you guys wrote what became the theme song, I guess a couple of years back, yep. but... But how how did that relationship even begin? Well, their producer Aaron, do you know Aaron? Uh, I do not know him well, but I know of him. Yes, Aaron Solomon. Yeah, he he was a huge fan, and uh, he had kind of gotten our name out there. And um, you know, Joel and I are, are, are big sports guys. You know, Brent Brent's big Cubs guy and stuff. So um, with Twitter and everything, I've I kind of befriended uh, Tim Kalishaw, one of the writers as yep. well. So I, I want I wanted to give him props for uh, being the one guy on ESPN who talks about hockey and NASCAR. <laughs> so I'm very biased. I'm a huge, I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, but I'm a huge hockey fan. And it's so funny when hockey season happening, I feel it's, it's so far down on the list. Everything, basketball, baseball, football, it just doesn't get the love. So, you know, I, I kind of joked with him and, and uh, made a relationship with uh, some of the ESPN guys. So when we came in, we had dinner with Tony. Tony actually came in and sat in with us. Piano I know on, it's uh, it's the ultimate fan dream. I know. I trust when he. Yeah. I, I I messaged him when that happened. I said, "You've got to be kidding me!" And I think he said, "I I, I might have <laughs> thrown up. I can't remember. I blacked out." Really cool moment for him, no doubt about it. Yeah, and being a you know, I used to watch uh, 
pardon the interruption, and, and around the horn, my dad all the time when when, uh, when he was in Chicago with me. And um, so it was it was fun to meet those guys and go into the studio and talk to uh, some of the writers and uh, uh, journalists. And then you know, with Twitter, it's so easy to be in touch with anyone. You know, so we've made some good friendships that way. And um, Umphreys has always kind of had – I've always used analogies from sports whenever I'm talking about, you know, our band. And, and I was a, a, an athlete growing up, and, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about team sports, and there's a big analogy with team sports and being in a team band. You know, well, can't be pulling can't – can't walk off the court before the game's over by yourself. You know, you can't, can't be pulling those moves. I get you, but who, who goes to the band and says, hey, listen, we want a new theme song. Will you write it? Like, how did that even happen? That that was that was uh, that was Aaron and Tony and the guys from from ESPN, you know. We ended, up, you know, I didn't I didn't get through the red tape with the, with management or ever, but it, yeah. you know, it was proposed to us and, and we worked on it and we just kept sending back uh, different ideas and. But Aaron and Tony were big were big a uh, big part of it. That's really cool. That's awesome. Uh, a couple more quickies here. Yeah. One, what sure. was uh, two studio studio things here? Or three studio questions. Um, First one, if you had to recommend any studio record for someone who's not familiar with the band, what is the what's the introduction to Humphreys? Which one would you say they should listen to? Even though you are a live band, studio stuff, what would you say? Yeah, would you count the London session as a studio session? I would. I would. More of a live take. Yeah, I would. Um, I, would, I, I would mean, I'm that. always I'm always going to be partial to what's uh, the most recent, but um, I think Mantis and, and Anchor Drops are are pretty solid uh, introductions to what the band kind of sounds like yes by the way is anchor drops coming out on vinyl anytime ryan or i think many fans are uh, waiting you know for I'll, ma- I'll make a request because <laughs> uh, i don't i don't uh, it would look great on my uh in my collection here that would look really so, good yeah i'm i'm eagerly awaiting yeah. for that uh what was the maybe we'll do the limited limited edition run hey that'd be terrific what was the uh what was the toughest record to lay down and you can interpret that question however you want whether it was arranging the parts took the longest uh was the toughest to you know get a track listing in order just in general which of of all your studio outputs was the biggest effort um i i gotta go with with the the london sessions the live uh live in abbey road because we had just flown over and the next day we did a marathon session. I mean, we were setting up in the morning and then we did 12 hours and got 10 songs done. And the last four of them were done in like one take, basically. So, I mean, pretty much everything that is on there happened right there. Um, so that was grueling because just just, just the pressure. playing that long after a flight like that, there's, there's, there's definitely the pressure too, but just trying to execute and, and, and know that this is the only time you have. Yeah, pressure. Know that this is the only time you have to get it and get it right. Um, it was pretty crazy. I was I was super proud of of what we did and what, how we pulled it off. Well, um, the first uh, the first record though. Do you have a question about that? No, no. Well, go ahead, go ahead. I'll I'll ask you quickly about London session after you're done your thought here. Um, I think local band does okay was probably the most interesting one that we recorded because the first time we we went down to uh, Cincinnati and, and we're recording in our friend's barn and uh, for two weeks we had two weeks to get everything done and. Um, some of the stuff was made up on the spot. Some of the stuff was uh, was finished. Some of it need to be finished. And uh, I remember Andy and I um, wore a wife beater and some Dickies pants for two weeks and didn't shower and slept like underneath underneath the drum set or the soundboard. It was it was quite a uh, early rock and roll <laughs> experience for for all of us. It was dirty and it was sweaty and stinky, and uh, it was a lot of fun, you know. And we were so green to the whole experience of being in a studio and how to do it right 
Surely. Now, with the London session, did you did you ask? Did you get a sense of you know, how do you even get that booked? And and did it feel? Uh, I don't want to say overwhelming, but but it's a deal where it's you basically are like you know okay this is this is yours for for twelve hours or fourteen hours whatever you said yeah. and it's it's literally the most famous recording studio in the world it's where the Beatles yeah. made their yeah. records all that stuff so how do you even get to book that kind of thing and going in I mean I don't know I, the whole the whole aspect of that record how it came out is so fascinating to me and I just wanted to have you kind of pontificate on that a little bit more. Yeah, it, it, it actually started with a, with, a, with a joke comment and then a phone call. Um, our engineer, Manny Sanchez, said, uh, hey, I see you guys are playing over in London. He's like, how about you uh, fly me out there and we do, uh, we do a session at Abbey Road? And uh, one of our managers, Kevin Browning, was like, you know, they kind of laughed it off. And he's like, well, let's make a phone call. And we happened to make a phone call and, and uh, the room was open. Studio B was open the one day that uh, we were able to make it happen. So we booked our flights to come a day early. And then, yeah, like I said before, the history, everything that's in that room, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. So there was a little bit of the pressure. Um, it wasn't overwhelming. I think it might have been the most overwhelming for Chris because uh, our drummer, I mean, if, you, if anybody out there, if you've seen him, the man's a beast. He's, a, he's an animal. And for him to be working that hard and going through that many takes, you know, he's no offense to Joel or anything, but he's not sitting on a piano bench just waiting for you know the next cut. Like he's using all five limbs, all five. Yeah, all five, all five indeed. I pick up on that. A nice little side swipe at Joel. I know, I know, we had to do that at some point in the podcast. <laughs> um, have you guys ever missed a gig over the years because of a broken down van, massive snowstorm? I mean, have you have you ever had like a truly like this is ridiculous? We're stuck on the side of the road. It's three fifteen in the morning. Any any ridiculous stuff like that that you might be able to share? Yeah, we've had that, but we never missed it. We've never missed it. Really? We had one uh, one time. We had one time in Nebraska where Andy was driving a suburban with a trailer, and and uh, we had ice and slid off the road, and the cops had come and. We were we had pushed and pushed for like an hour, and they were like, "Listen, you're gonna have to leave us here overnight. We're gonna tow you into town, and you have to stay. And we'll get it, or we'll get it in the morning or something." We're like, "No, man, we have a gig tomorrow. Let's give it one more college try." And I, and I remember we all got behind and we pushed it out. We ended up making the gig. Now uh, Joel has missed a gig because of pneumonia, and Brendan missed a gig because of an engagement party, and I missed my first gig because of the birth of my daughter. So everybody's had pretty legitimate reasons, but uh, I was a Cal Ripken there for a while, Man, over look. 2,000 gigs, you know. But uh, I think the, it, like you know, it's much more important to be at home having the birth of your child than to be uh, rocking a gig. Uh, you can quote me on that one. I'll, uh, stand, I'll stand behind that one. I will quote you on that one, and I definitely fully identify. Uh, Live wise song that is the most challenging for you to play and let's let's eliminate the improv aspects of it because it can't really apply but uh, a tune or two that you enjoy playing but it's you know it's it's a real challenge like you, you know you got to kind of totally focus in for people that might not be totally uh, familiar with all your catalog or fans that might not be even be aware because they don't play bass or they don't play an instrument yeah. what what are some of the one or two that are you know you really got to lock in for Usually it's it's whatever is the newest because I'm still trying to develop um, parts and uh, remember the sections of the song. But I mean, one that most of them are muscle memory at this point. But one that one that's tough and that I need to be in shape and is, is Wizard Burial Ground. I mean, playing uh, playing trying to emulate what Jake's doing with a, with a picking hand with just my fingers. Yeah. Um, 
I have to really hone in on that one to try to keep it crisp. A lot of fast runs. So that one, probably that one. All right, cool. A couple more quickies here. I'll let you go. Your time has been tremendous. This has been good, and hopefully Humphreys fans are enjoying this. Uh, first of all, you, you golf, right? You said you're an athlete, and I've seen photos of you golfing. So are, yeah. are, you, are you a hacker, or are we talking like a 10 handicap here? I mean, how are you on the course there, Ryan? Uh, you know, are we betting, or, or am I just bragging? <laughs> what you know, I'll, I'll say 14. I'll say 14. Really? Okay. So that's pr- that's pretty damn yeah. solid, man. That's that's impressive. I mean, have yeah, you I be- mean, Andy, Chris, Joel, and I have our sticks underneath the bus, and, and we try to play as much as possible. Um, you know, once you have a kid, it's not it's it's not as easy to get to the course as much. Um, my game's not as good as it could be, but you know, golf a lifetime to master. It really is, trust me. And I'm nowhere near a 14, uh, so that's that's extremely extremely impressive. Any pre-show superstitions that you have, or or pre-show things that you do collectively as a band or individually that uh, that people might not be aware of? Um. No, not really. We used to all smoke weed, but that that's changed with age. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't partake before shows um, like we used to when we were first starting the band. Okay. So, any other rituals? No, you know. It's, I, I feel like as you get older, it gets a little more uh, a little more lame for the rock and roll enigma, and you kind of want to keep that up. So I don't know how many stories I should tell. You know, <laughs> we recently had a we had a friend come backstage and. Um, one of our uh, crew members' daughters came and rode out, and she was expecting like backstage to be these raging parties with like bras being thrown away. And, and you were uh, like, you the, know, the tea, the tea is over there, and if you need the massage rolling pad, it's in the corner. <laughs> yeah, it's like we're over here working out in the corner. Another guy's reading, you know, another guy's napping and snoring. Joel, you know. so that you know, it's 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 dulled down a little bit. We're a little more, uh, you know, the old the old bones need a little more resting. Yeah. So rituals now might be might have gone to a, a nap. Can I say a nap? <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. Listen, naps have always been cool. That's the thing. People don't realize naps this. Naps rock. Naps rock. With, without a doubt, without a doubt. All right, last question here. So yeah. you now, you all live in mostly different parts of the country, right? And so your touring schedule is, is, yeah. per, is particularly, you know, you, you just you pick your spots and you go on, what, six-week runs or whatever. So now that you are, you know, you're building families and you're all, you know, into your mid to late 30s um, in how are you able to, I guess, keep a, a sense of forward momentum when you weren't as, you know, it wasn't like that a decade ago, I would presume, when you were all in much closer quarters and rehearsing and practicing yeah. a lot more frequently. So how do you pull that off when you're, you know, you guys got to get on planes to see each other? Well, the rehearsing and practicing has not slowed down in any way. And we definitely put time away to get together and write as a band. But like that, that's why I was um, kind of joking about the way the rock and roll life has, has changed. It's it's a lot of work. Like when we wake up in the morning, we have practice gear set up and we practice on our own. And then we have a sound check. We'll rehearse stuff for either that evening or new songs or stuff going on. And then we have practice gear an hour before the show where we get together and we play. And that'll be either just practicing, either running other stuff that's complicated for, for the evening gig or new ideas or just jamming or just clowning around. You know, so that's always happening because we know we don't have as much time once we leave each other. But it's just as important to fucking leave each other because we used to live in a van and a suburban with each other every day. And we went and started families with women and <laughs> need to go do that and be with our women and be with our kids. And uh, that, that makes it that much more um, tolerable and fun to be with each other, you know, so you don't burn each other out. You know, 17 years on the road is a long time. 
and uh, this space is really nice. You know, we worked hard, and I think we deserve it. And, uh, you know, but everybody's staying on top of their chops. Other guys do. I know Chris and Joel and Jake are always doing side gigs, and, you know, I'm always practicing when I'm, when I'm back home here, going through a, another Jocko Pistorius phase. Just there we go. a bunch of his music and stuff, good stuff. So disappointed that I didn't discover him until so late in my life, but then again, I didn't play bass until I was 18 or 19, but... What a badass. Um, Jaco is ridiculous, uh, he, without a doubt. Him, I would say him and Wooten are probably my, my two favorites, but Victor Wooten is, I believe, from a different universe. So um, Yeah, yeah, he's an alien. He, yeah, that's with, the beauty of the internet now on YouTube, man. You just you just click into, like, crazy bass or bass. Yeah, I know. You, I, you can lose two hours on YouTube, like world. nothing. Yeah. Oh, dude, I lose way more than that, but it's great. It's so, it's so, uh, it's entertaining. It's, 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 um, um, very valid lessons in this stuff. I have, it makes you think outside the box, you know, I consider that practice even that's not a, that's not wasting time. You know, it's not like watching two and a half men or something, you know, there you go. Well, listen, you can follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Stasic and that's R Y A N S T A S I K. This was a tremendous conversation. I cannot thank you enough. I appreciate the insight into the band, the inner workings of it. And certainly fans will appreciate it as well. Cause you guys do such a good job of, really acknowledging the fan base and as you've mentioned before kind of you know taking cues from them and and, and letting them have something yeah. of a say of hey, listen this is the way we're going but if you you know if there's something you guys would like us to see us try or experiment or keep doing they uh they're not shy about doing that you're not shy about listening so thank you so much ryan for joining me yeah yep yeah thank you for the opportunity maybe uh if we do it again i'll uh, i'll release a little more dirt about the band and uh, we'll talk some shit about sports. That sounds good, man. We'll definitely do that down the road. Appreciate it so much. All right, man. Thank you.